Okay, reading from uh, the uh, biblical book of Romans, chapter 8. Uh, if you don't have your own Bible with you, we would ask you to take the uh, copy of the Bibles from the back of the chairs, these ones here, and turn to page 1135. It's 1135, so you can follow the reading as I present it and then keep it open as Phil speaks to us through it. <coughs> the biblical book of Romans is a letter from uh, uh, the Apostle Paul to Christians in Rome. In chapter 8, we've been seeing how uh, uh, the gospel message encourages us to have hope um, even uh, through suffering and uh, even uh, if that leads us to groaning. And we now move on to verse 31 of chapter 8, and in our Bibles, it's headed more than conquerors. (coughs) Romans chapter 8, reading from verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you, Father. Let's pray together. Father, that's the most wonderful passage, and we pray that you would set our hearts on fire again as we read it this morning. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, let me tell you about Derek. Uh, Derek was a, a member of our church in Lowestoft. And uh, uh, he used to be a policeman. And he opened the door for you when you arrived at church. He had a big friendly face. And always had a pocket full of toffees for the children. And one day, Derek had a big heart attack. And the doctors told him that he was going to die. And I popped up to see him in hospital. And uh, the first thing he said to me was also the last thing he said. He said this, don't worry, Phil, I know where I'm going. And Derek died uh, peacefully uh, just a few hours later with his family by his side. Now, let me tell you about uh, Edna, another Christian. She also knew that she was dying Uh, The symptoms are well controlled, uh, but Edna was so agitated and fearful and terrified. You could see it in her eyes when I visited her, and she too died a few hours later. Now, are you a Derek or an Edna? Can you say, don't worry, Phil, I know where I'm going? Or are you perhaps secretly terrified at the thought of what's going to happen when you die? And die we will. 
unless Jesus comes back first. Well, Romans chapter 8, um, it is, uh, it's a great, the whole chapter is a wonderful chapter. And as we come to the end of it here, it's a wonderful passage. And it aims to produce more Derricks among us and no Ednas. And it's all about being sure. And uh, if you're not sure about the future, maybe you're not sure if you're a Christian yet, or maybe you are a Christian and you're afraid. Well, this passage just says this. Are you unsure? Well, what you need to do is look to the cross. Look to the cross. Because the cross, the cross of Christ, is the center of everything. And in the end, it is the answer to everything. There's a great missionary bishop who uh, uh, I knew a long time ago now, and he said this, in the Christian theology of history, the death of Christ is the central point of history. Here, all the roads of the past converge, hence all the roads of the future diverge. And we can be sure And we can be confident as Christians, as we look to the cross, that the cross is the place that we go to for that confidence. And in fact, uh, chapter 8 begins, if you look just across the page 1134, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it ends in verses 38 and 39 by saying there is no separation. There is no separation from God for those who are in Christ Jesus. So this morning, we're thinking of being assured. We're thinking of being sure about our eternal destiny. We're thinking about uh, assurance. Now, that is not the same as arrogance, but assurance is just simply a humble acknowledgement that what God has done for us actually impacts not just life, but our eternity. And our every deepest need is met just simply at the cross of Christ. And verses 31 and 38 are all about the cross. It may not quite seem like it when you read it first, but when you look at it in a bit more detail, you see this is about the cross. And there are five great questions here. And there are five great answers. And uh, uh, and in fact, you could say five almost unanswerable questions. Verse 31, 32, 33, 34, 35. There are five great questions there. And, uh, uh, and they always beat out of us any thought that we're not saved, any thought that we're not saved by grace alone. And therefore, we're completely safe to face life and to face death without fear. There need be no fear in the Christian life. If you're fearful, look to the cross. If you're fearful of the doctor's appointment on Tuesday, look to the cross. If you're fearful of coming exams or maybe your children's exams, then look to the cross. If you're fearful of death and dying, then look to the cross. If you're fearful about your finances, look to the cross. If you're fearful about being made redundant, And being, what they say, useless, it's not true, for the rest of your life, look to the cross. 
Now, we've got five great questions answered with five great truths. And the headings, the answers, if you like, are takeaways, things I'd love you to remember. If someone asked you at lunchtime, what was it about? Then I hope you could say already, Phil said, look to the cross. But there are five things we're going to look at. And it may be those five things you'd like to try and remember and get them into your minds as we look through this this morning. So the first thing is this. Five great questions, answer with five great truths. And here's the first one. God is on our side. Look at verse 31 here. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, there are plenty of things which can unsettle us. There are plenty of people and circumstances which we can feel are against us. And when you look back at Romans chapter 7, for instance, and our moral failures can unsettle us, can't they? It's uh, we fail in sin again. Or maybe it's suffering. Maybe it's suffering in its various forms, persecution or illness or death or bereavement can unsettle us uh, as well. And the simple fact is this. As Christians, God has foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified us. That's verse 30, just uh, before this morning's passage. He is for us. God is on our side. John Stott wrote this once, All the powers of hell may set themselves together against us, but they can never prevail since God is on our side. Now, when I was younger, I used to play a bit of hockey. And uh, I played for my, uh, my theological college, which happened to be in Oxford, and we played other Oxford colleges. And our team was made up of, of a few people like me who had played before, not very well, but had played before, uh, and then a few people who weren't hockey players, but they had a good eye for a ball, so they could kind of hit a ball, and, uh, and then a guy called Paul Weston. Now, Paul Weston was extremely good, and he was hard, and a defender. And in every game he played against these young students, in the first five minutes, someone would get tackled by Paul Weston. And when you got tackled by Paul Weston, let's just say you stayed tackled. Okay? And, uh, uh, and quite often we heard um, the, uh, the guy who got tackled or someone else on their team being really surprised. And they said, this guy's going to be a vicar. Why does he play hockey like this? And uh, they're not supposed to be that hard. We didn't like to tell them that. Actually, his dad's a vicar, his brother's a vicar, and now his sister is married to a bishop. So we thought we'd better keep quiet about that. But my point is this. Paul was hard, but he was fair. And he was a star player of our team. And we were so pleased that he was on our side. He made all the difference. Even meant we won the occasional match as well, which was great. Now, Paul Weston isn't God, of course. But God is on our side. And how much better is that? And we know that because of the cross. He is for us. No one can effectively oppose God. You, if you're a Christian, you are on the winning side. I am on the winning side. And as Charles Spurgeon once wrote, it is impossible that any ill should happen to the man who is beloved of the Lord. Ill to him is no ill, but only good in a mysterious form. Losses enrich him. Sickness is his medicine. Reproach is his honor. Death is his gain. 
So we look at the cross and it tells us that God is for us. That is a simple truth of the cross. God is on our side. He is for us. Thank him for the cross. And ask yourself that first unanswerable question. If God is for us, who can be against us? No one. And no thing. Ever. Or in all eternity. Extraordinarily wonderful. God is on our side. Our second uh, takeaway, if you like, is this. God is generous to us. The question's in verse 32 there. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? This is saying the cross tells us that God is unbelievably generous. How do we know that? Because at the cross, he gave us his only son for you and for me. Someone said, for God to give up Jesus to die and then abandon us on the roadside on the way to glory would be as unthinkable as someone selling their home to buy a new hypercar. Hypercars, they're like supercars, but any better, like that. And, uh, uh, and then leave it on the roadside, saying they possibly couldn't possibly afford the petrol to run it. It's just a ridiculous thought. You wouldn't buy that and then not drive it, would you? Now we're seeing in the Bible here that God is generous to us. He gave up Jesus for us. So why worry about our needs? And this giving up verb that we have here, um, it, the same word has is, is already been used before Romans. It was used in the Gospels a number of times. It's there translated handed over. But it's the same word in the original. It's used of Jesus being handed over by Jesus, handed over by the priests, handed over to be crucified, handed over or given him up to die for us. And God the Father has handed Jesus over or given Jesus up to death for us. Through the actions of Judas and the priests and the high priests and the crowds and Pilate and so on, he has given up his son. He's given us his son. So how could he fail to lavish every other gift upon us? In giving us Jesus, he's given us everything. That is everything. So actually, what we're seeing here is it guarantees our future because of the unfailing generosity of God. The cross proves God's generosity. His ongoing generosity. So look to the cross and be thankful and full of praise for the generosity of God. And as you look to the future, be confident. Be very confident that his generosity means that he will complete his work of salvation. And give you heaven. I'm always... Uh, encouraged when I remember Margaret Beavis. If you've been at BH a little while, you'll remember Margaret. Uh, Even when we came here 14 odd years ago, now she uh, she couldn't really get to church. But one day she managed to get to Carol's by Candlelight. She was over there in her wheelchair and I popped over to see her. I was delighted to see her. Popped over to see her and her nickname was Tigger. And when she saw me, she said this, Oh Phil, I'm so excited. All this and heaven too. 
And so I thought that was just delightful. And that was very, that was very Margaret. And be confident in God's generosity. He will give us heaven too. Number three. Unsure? Look to the cross. God justifies us. Look at verse 33. That's a third question there. Uh, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? And uh, uh, that's the question. And the picture is a law court. That's the old Bailey in London. You're in the dock. You're accused of all sorts of immoral behavior, unethical thoughts and words. And you know every single one of them is true. From greed to gossip to gambling, coarse jokes to coveting, dishonoring your parents to disgusting thoughts. And every single one of them is true and shameful. But there's no prosecution can succeed since God is our judge and he has already justified us. He's already declared us just as if we'd never done any of it. Because Jesus died for us and took that punishment for us all. God justifies us. Who accuses us? Our conscience does? Yes. The devil does? Yes. Human enemies do? Yes. But none of them stick because God has chosen us. God has justified us through the cross and we're free. And God declares us righteous. Why would you ever feel guilty or unforgiven? Because Jesus died for us. It's there. It happens. You placed your trust in that. You can be confident in that. You're unsure? Go and look at the cross. That's where Jesus' death opened the way to heaven for all those who put their trust in him. That's where we're declared not guilty. Just as if we'd never done anything wrong in the first place and free free look to the cross the fourth unanswered question has this answer God was condemned for us the question's in verse 34 who then is the one who condemns no one who can condemn us no one Because God was in Christ condemned for us. He was condemned in our place. You look to the cross, you see Jesus nailed there, and you think he was condemned for me. Now our hearts, our critics, our enemies, the demons, they all want to condemn us and try their hardest to do so. But they all fail because of the cross of Jesus. And Jesus died for the very sins we're condemned by. And Jesus was raised by the Father to show his acceptance of Jesus' sacrifice as the only satisfactory basis for our justification. And he is now at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. So ask the question, who is it who condemns us? And there is never, ever, ever any answer. No one. And no one ever will. If you're trusting Jesus and his death for us. God's on our side. God is a generous God. He is uh, generous to us. He justifies us. He was condemned for us. 
And then the fifth and the final thing here is Jesus loves us. God loves us. The question is in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I answer, no one and no thing. You're a Christian? Unsure about your future? Look to the cross and you see in those nailed hands and that pierced side, you see that God loves us. And that's where we see it more clearly than anywhere else. And you read here, verses 35 to 39, is utterly brilliant, isn't it? Martin Lloyd-Jones said about this, we're climbing a grand staircase in Romans 8, and in these verses, we reach the top. The question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one can. Nothing can. You can have pressures from ungodly and the hostile world. You can have a lack of food and clothing. You can be in danger of death and actually die. All those are in verse 35. And can any of those separate us from the love of God? No. Never. Uh, the extent and the intensity of God's love. It's such that Augustine could say, God loves each one of us as if there was only one of us to love. How much does God love us? You see it at the cross. Now, actually, all the previous four questions are really just versions of this one. Because the only thing we really have to fear is separation from the love of God. And that will never happen if you're a Christian. Because of the cross. I mean, even if we're slaughtered in a persecution of Christians, verse 36 quotes Psalm 44, and it's a picture of an abattoir. But it's not sheep and cattle. It's us. And in verse 37, we're more than conquerors, or literally, it's super conquerors. How? Through him who loved us. It's the cross. Again, that's God's love. Look to the cross. And then this passage concludes with this extraordinarily wonderful verses 38 and 39. We're going to say it together in just a moment. So if you haven't got your Bibles there, do grab the one in front of you, page 1135. And uh, when he says, I am convinced in verse 38... Literally, it's because I have become convinced, and I am convinced, and I will remain convinced. Rational, settled, unchanging convincedness. Okay? That nothing can, so nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will frustrate God's purpose because he is for us. Nothing will quench God's generosity because he gave us his son. Nothing and no one can accuse us or condemn us because we're justified because in, in Christ, God stood condemned in our place. And nothing can separate us from the love of God. If you're ever unsure, look to the cross of Christ every day let's look to the cross of Christ it will stop us from getting unsure and it will keep us in that assurance the cross is everything we look to the cross 
And it is there that we see the epitome, the, 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 the center of these great truths that God is on our side, that God is generous to us, that God justifies us, that God was condemned for us in Jesus, and that God loves us more than you ever thought possible. More than you ever thought possible. Do grab your Bibles. We're going to say verses 38 and 39. Let's say these together now. For I am convinced neither death nor life nor angels nor demons neither the present nor the future nor anything else nor, nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.